Last week, Mark sang the song about uh, Teach Me Thy Ways, O Lord. That was out of Psalm, I got it, yeah, Psalm 25, verse 4. Show me thy ways, O Lord, and teach me thy paths. Okay, that gets rid of this. Then this morning, Jerry was reading from Psalm 17, 4. Concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Remember when Jerry read that? And a thought just hit me. We may walk in the paths of the Lord, but you can walk in the paths of the destroyer too. And that's not a good path. And by the word, same word. I looked it up just to be sure. Same word for paths in both places. So it behooves us to be careful that we walk with the Lord and that we we be kept away from the paths of the destroyer because that's what he's all about, destruction, ruin. And he would delight to ruin your life, ruin my life, and the only safe haven is in a a fellowship with, with the Lord, walking with him. No other way. Well, we're in Mark chapter 15. We're about to finish that up, this chapter that is. And of course, well, we're about to finish the book as well. We're going into chapter 16 soon. Um, (coughs) In talking about, of course, this whole chapter has been about the betrayal of Jesus, his crucifixion, the mockery, and and, uh, the ignominious treatment that he received uh, from the, the people that he was around. And you know, when you think about a chapter like this, I mean, it's been awful, horrid. All the things, they beat on Jesus, they spit on him, treated him with mockery and taunts and cruelty. And yet, when you look back at God's plan from even before the foundation of the world, there is this this strange meeting or intersection of God's love, his beauty, wrapped up in this chapter. And it's hard to put our minds around something like that when we think of all the cruelty that Jesus suffered, and yet the marvelous beauty that God has put forth from before the foundation of the world even was that he had set all this in motion. It's his design and his plan. And of course, I think all that helps us to appreciate what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Over in in, uh, John 17, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Now, what comforting words in a moment like this when I think of one who has just gone to be with the Lord, Brother Dale. And he had a prayer said for him by Jesus himself. That they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Of course, he's talking about himself, the Lord Jesus. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, Just as he chose us, now it's us. 
He loved his son before the foundation of the world, but he chose us in him, he says, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now remember here, this is to the church at Ephesus, primarily Gentiles. And he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He was the chief cornerstone before the foundation of the world. We have another foundation that our lives are built on, the apostles and the prophets. And so the Gentiles are included. Over in Hebrews chapter 1, he said, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Chapter 9, verse 25, he said, Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. In other words, the high priest went in, all the time, frequently, into the holy place, once a year into the most holy, to offer sacrifices. And if Jesus had been like those high priests, he'd have been offering himself over and over and over. But he says here, but now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away the sacrifice, uh, the sin of, by the sacrifice of himself. So... <coughs> In our chapter here, chapter 15, in verse 39, where we ended last week, when that Roman centurion soldier said, truly, truly, this was an amazing expression from a Gentile that at the very moment of Jesus' death, he was making a proclamation as to who this man was. Truly, he says, this man was the Son of God. Or as some render it, this man was God's Son. And it was a Gentile. The religious leaders of Israel had just been prominent at the forefront in putting Jesus to death and crucifying him. And now he makes this bold declaration before all, even before his fellow soldiers that this was God's Son. Remarkable that all this juxtaposition of these things came at this very point, this point in which Jesus died. Now, <coughs> it's an interesting turn right here because he turns to mention these women who were present at the crucifixion. So in verse 40, he says, There were also women looking on from afar. Now, what were they doing? Well, obviously, they were giving witness to the fact that Jesus was being crucified, and there were others, there were witnesses as well. There were Jews there, and there were the Roman soldiers that were there. The religious leaders didn't most likely come. You know, they, they, they the, the, in other words, the chief priests and the, and the, and the Sanhedrin, of the Sanhedrin and so on, the scribes, but there were other interested parties. And it also says uh, they were looking on from afar. 
In John's account, it tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was standing near the cross at the point in time when he made the proclamation and uh, for John to take care of her. It seems like maybe, evidently, they must have moved away. And they were watching from a distance, observing. As a matter of fact, the word looking on is uh, a word where we get our word for theater. It's a word that means that you watch with observation, paying attention to the details, seeing everything that was happening in this whole scene. So they were standing back where they could watch and, and view everything. And he names them by name now, these particular women, three of them. Mary, Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joses and Salome. Now, <coughs> these three were considered unique in that it says they followed uh, Jesus and ministered to him in verse 41. Verbs of an imperfect tense, indicating that this was the regular feature and habit of what they were doing. It was, it was what they did. They followed. It's the same word, a, a variation of the same word used over in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And it indicates following with the idea of discipleship. And that's the in implication you get here. These three followed as disciples of Jesus. And then they also ministered unto him. Jesus was dependent on others during his entire ministry for his daily sustenance. Place to sleep, things to eat, and so on. I don't know if they washed his clothes too or what. But they ministered to him. It's the same word where you get the word deacon from. They served the Lord, and they followed him. So this, this was a, what do you want to call it? a tight group here of these three women. And they obviously knew each other well. Mary Magdalene. <coughs> um, don't know a whole lot about her, except for that obviously she was from the city of Magdala, on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. And then also over in Luke chapter 8 and verse 2, and you want to turn over there, let's turn to Luke chapter 8. It tells us a little bit about this Mary. And by the way, you know there are several Marys in the Bible, so these are specifically identified. It's Mary the Magdalene. That one is the one we're talking about, Mark says. And in chapter 8, verse 2, well, read verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. I cannot fathom being possessed by one demon, let alone seven. But this woman had been delivered and cleansed 
And now she was a devoted follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus. You have Mary, the mother of James the Less and, and of Jose's. Uh, this Mary is identified by her two sons. Don't know a lot about the two sons, but the thing that would be very, should be very obvious, I suppose, to us is that um, if they were mentioned by name in Mark's gospel, then the early church believers must have known who they were, and they were identified with this particular Mary. Now, um, her one son is called James the Less, and my apologies to Ken, but the less here is the Greek word, it's micro, like a microbiology, microcomputers, and so on. It means small, short. <laughs> now, I couldn't help it. I said, you just, you opened the door wide open this morning when you said, I like songs with short verses. I thought, now, come on, Ken. You're helping me out too much, you know, I, I just... So, James the Less, he was the shorty, evidently well-known for who he was and his testimony and his brother Jose's, and I don't know anything about him. And then we have Salome. Now, who is she? Well, her name only appears here in Mark's gospel, but if you look in the other gospel accounts, we can tie some things together and figure out who this, who this lady is. Over in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. So let's turn over there real quick. Now you might remember Matthew chapter 20. Uh, that's the account of the idle workers in the market and how they were sent out. And then immediately following that, we have this story about how the sons of Zebedee, or excuse me, the, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him, from Jesus. The mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, having said that, look over just a couple chapters to the right to Matthew 27. And if you turn over there in verse 56, I think it's, well, yeah, minor right now. I'm in chapter 26. I'll get over to the right chapter. Verse 56 of chapter 27. Matthew's Gospel, where it says, Among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Well, who was the mother? Uh, who is this woman, Zebedee's sons? Who were her sons, in other words? Well, you can turn to another passage, which would happen to be over in Mark chapter 10, in our Gospel that we're studying. We've already looked at this. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, and there it tells us, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So Salome was the mother of James and John, the apostles. Which gives us an indication of the, something of the intimacy of those who were followers of Jesus, and the families that were involved. It says they also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. So they were Galileans. And many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So you see how these three are distinguished from many other women who were closely associated with the Lord Jesus 
And they all came up together in this big party that was walking up to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, if you might remember earlier when we were looking in Mark's gospel here about the account of them traveling, you remember it says Jesus was out in front of the disciples leading the way. Behind him was the disciples, and they were talking and mingling among themselves and so on. And Jesus was using these, this opportunity for a teaching experience. Behind them would have been the larger crowd, including these women. So they weren't just going to Jerusalem for Passover, as they did year after year after year, but they went as associates and followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, he goes on to say that, verse 42, we come to the burial. Now, when evening had come. Now, I know if you're like me, first thing I do is I think about it starting to get dark. You know, evening is approaching. But in Jewish time, from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock was the first evening. That was late afternoon, and it was called the first evening. Then from, from that 6 o'clock on till dark was called the second evening. And the reason that, of course, is significant is because we know that Jesus had to have been buried by 6 o'clock. When... The Sabbath would occur when Passover would begin. He couldn't be left hanging on a tree. Now, <coughs> um, over in, um, yeah, let me see. I need to get on the next page here. It says here that it was the preparation day. If you see there in verse 42, now when evening had come because it was the preparation day. In other words, the day prior to the Sabbath Passover. Everything had to be done by 6 o'clock. Everything had to be prepared. The word preparation, if you just translate it literally, would be make ready. And I think even the King James says make ready. Most of the newer translations say preparation, to get ready. When I worked at a printing company, as soon as I got out of high school, I hired in with R.R. Donnelly and Sons Company. It's a real large printing company. And they had a plant located in Warsaw, and we had these humongous big presses. I mean, like, well, at the highest point, they would, they would be as high as the peak of the ceiling here. And then, you know, they were about 10 feet wide and... They were used for printing. Well, at that time, they had just signed a contract with J.C. Penney, a 25-year contract to print their catalogs. Now, I'm just saying all that is when the press went down in order to prepare for the next job and we were getting it ready, we, we had a term we used. It was called make ready. Well, they were doing the same thing here. Preparation for Passover. It was make ready. It's time to get ready and prepare for what was to come. So the lambs had to be slain that day. Everything had to be completely furnished. All the meals had to be prepared for the Passover meal. Everything, all the cooking was done. Everything was set. No labor could be done on the Sabbath. Not only that, somewhere, and I've lost my place here, but I'm going to find it, over in 
Deuteronomy chapter somewhere. I'll find it. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. You remember what it says there about leaving a dead man hanging on a tree? It said they can't do it. Don't leave a dead man hanging on a tree overnight. So there were several motives in mind here for them to take the body of Jesus down before sunset. So he goes on to say that it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And notice what happens. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member. All that means is he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the people responsible for getting Jesus arrested and having him crucified. But this Sanhedrin member had a heart for the Lord. Matthew tells us he was rich. Well, that was pretty typical of Sanhedrin to begin with. And he was himself, it says, waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, the words waiting for, it means like he was looking for it. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now, that tells us something about this man, Joseph, that he was a spiritually minded person. It tells us he had his heart set on what the prophets had proclaimed about the coming rule of God over the earth. And so he was, a, he was a man who really was sensitive to the message that Jesus had been proclaiming. You remember we just got done reading about Jesus going throughout uh, the villages, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. He knew what Jesus' message was, and so he had this peculiar sensitivity and an openness to the message of the Lord Jesus regarding the coming kingdom. And so it says he was he, he coming and taking courage went in to Pilate. Now, again, you might remember, you know, Joseph was obviously, he didn't reveal another place, and I don't remember where I'm at now, but it says there that, he, you know, he was afraid to make himself known as a disciple of the Lord for fear of the Jews. He was sort of like Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night. Joseph, he was a disciple down here. He played it cool till the most opportune time in his life came at the death of the Savior. And then it says he went boldly, courageously. Again, I'm just thinking, you understand the power that Pilate had. You understand the position that he held. And for a person like <coughs> Joseph of Arimathea, he wasn't even from Jerusalem, it's, to go to Pilate, and asked for the body. Now, that wasn't entirely such an unusual thing. It was common for family members to ask for the body of a crucified person. And it's interesting, I 
amazing. He says he went and asked for the body. And if you jump down to verse 45, it says, So when uh, he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. He, it says he, the word granted there is to give as a gift. Don't you find that incredible? He gave it as a gift. He didn't have to. And from my understanding, oftentimes the family would come, there was a golden opportunity to charge a fee to get the body. But he didn't do that. And so he went in to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate marveled that he was already dead. I mean, it's like, I don't know if I can believe that. He's only been there since 9 o'clock this morning. It would often frequently take two or three days for one to die in crucifixion. So he marveled at this whole idea and was, couldn't hardly believe it. As a matter of fact, in order to get proof, he called for the centurion himself. And he said, in our lingo, is he dead? And it says, when he found out from the centurion that he was dead, he gave the body as a gift to Joseph. Now, there's another interesting play on words here. In verse 43, when he says he asked for the body of Jesus, the word for body there, soma, is this. In other words, we all have a soma here. So it's, a, it's used for a, a living person. Could be used for a dead person. Joseph did. It's the real body, in other words, as a person. But when he, Pilate used the word body here, it says he granted the body, it's the word for a corpse or a carcass or a piece of flesh. I don't know all the significance behind that, but it does tell us a little bit something about the attitude of Pilate towards Jesus. And it could be in all likelihood, you remember Jesus had two thieves dying with him. They broke the legs of them so they would die in a hurry so they could get them off the cross by 6 o'clock. It could very well be that that's just how Pilate looked on Jesus, just like one of those thieves. And let's just, you know, he's just another, another commoner, get him off the cross. And then there was also the possibility, you know, the, the two thieves, where would their graves have been? Well, probably out in the potter's field, you know, where they didn't have any family, they didn't have any money. So they would send them off to the commoner's graveyard. May very well be that's what Pilate had in the back of his mind. Just get all them off the cross and let's get prepared for this coming event, which is coming up just in, well, from the actual time of death would have been three hours. So he had to go to Pilate, get permission, come back. You see in the next verse, he stopped off somewhere and he bought fine linen and he made preparation. He took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Now, at this point in time, if you look in, I think it was, oh, man, where was it now? He went somewhere. Uh, it tells us that Nicodemus joined in with him. And they went, it's John's gospel in John chapter 19. 
It says Nicodemus joined in, and they took the body of Jesus down. They had about a hundred pounds of spikenard and and, and uh, um, what's the other word I'm looking for there? Huh? Yeah, the things they were anointing Jesus's body with before they wrapped him in the linen. The words escaping me. I want to use, but what? Well, myrrh and whatever else, all the spices. That is, it's an easy word, say, spices. All these things that they wrapped the body of Jesus in, a hundred pounds worth, and would layer those, wrap that linen and layer the spices on and wrap him all up in preparation for his burial. In other words, here again we find at this, this unique juncture in history, two men, one who always came to Jesus by night and had the reputation and testimony of that's what he did. The other one who lived in fear of the Jews and was afraid to reveal himself as a follower and a believer in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, now coming with great boldness at the very point of Jesus' death, revealing themselves to the religious authorities that they were followers of the Christ. And being men of means, they were able, able to provide a dignified burial for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What did I do, Jerry? It's Aloe. 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 Okay, there you go. He had to look it up for me. I couldn't think of that thing. So they laid him... They. They finished this process, and it says in verse 46, they laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb, sealed it off. They had to hurry. And this last verse then tells us these women were still there. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, observed where he was laid. Again, theatero, watching theatrically, that is paying close attention to all the events that were taking place because they were going to come back. And we find out in the next chapter later on, that's exactly what they did. In this scene that we find here at the burial and all the events that were transpiring in order to get Jesus off the cross and into the tomb so that the Sabbath Passover could be observed. To me, the most significant thing to stand out was, well, a couple things. Number one, the treatment accorded to Jesus by God's plan that he would not be buried as a common thief, that he was put in a rich man's tomb, the most dignified place that he could have been put as God's son and as king of kings and lord of lords. The other significance I see is on the side of man. The fact that at a crucial point in time, when they were called upon, they responded 
by revealing themselves and manifesting themselves as genuine followers of Jesus. Disciples. They weren't just ordinary churchgoers, in other words. They didn't just come on Sunday, bring their Bible, maybe not even bring their Bible, come and listen to the sermon, and then go home, and then that's it for the rest of the week. They weren't just, just Jews who went to the temple on the Sabbath and observed all this, the Sabbath goings-on and refused to work and all those other sorts of things that the Jews were habitually in the habit of doing, because that's what a good Jew does. But he had an open heart. He and Nicodemus both had an open heart and a mind to serve the Lord and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in making preparation openly and boldly before Pilate himself, along with the religious authorities, in burying Jesus. Now, of course, the pure and plain application to me is, is where are we? How many people really know where I stand as a Christian? How many of my neighbors, how many of my co-workers, how many of my relatives know where I am as a follower of Christ? Have you been so bold as to you know, reveal your own self publicly as a follower? Some of us have been put in positions where we didn't, we had to decide one way or the other, which way are we going to go? Some of you may be facing that yet, and you will have to do so. But there's a point in each of our lives that God is calling us to where we need to surrender. We need to give in, and we need to boldly proclaim and let others know who I am and what I stand for. I think I've told you the story um, and I'll try to make it brief, but I mean, we're from up north, what can I say? They don't talk. The last time I was home for a funeral, I found out that, you know, I've told you now about my mom and how she became a Christian at the death of my dad at the age of 80. Nobody else in the family knew it. She didn't tell anybody but her, my sister and me. Then I found out that her brother and uncle, who had been a member of a, a church, I won't tell you what, for well over 50 years, because I know he sang in the choir for 52 years, and he went to his wife one day and said, could you explain how I can know God? He said, I have never understood. Fifty-something years going to church. But he, find, he became a believer due to her witness to him. Then I found out another cousin of mine who's a believer, witness to her dad, that's another brother of my mom's, he became a believer. You know, none of them knew each other who was, was a Christian. 
They just didn't talk about it. Now, I'm going I'm to rectify that when I get the opportunity. When I go home, uh, I'm going to fix that because I'm going to expose them all. And, and I'm not going to be mean, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I got all over my mother. I said, I told her about them. I said, you, you don't even talk to each other. Now, they're, they're, they're the most wonderful brothers and sisters. There was 11 of them that lived to adulthood, 13 altogether. They meet, for years they have been meeting every Sunday morning. You don't ever hear them arguing and fighting. They get along as wonderfully as they can be, but they don't talk about anything spiritual. Now, that, that, that's, that was Nicodemus. That was Joseph. They didn't talk publicly about their faith. But when God put them in a place where they had the opportunity, they rose to the occasion, and they put all those things aside, and they openly declared themselves as followers of Christ. I pray that you would do that, that you would not live in fear what others may say or what they may think. You know, they'll only do one thing. It will draw you right into the circle of his love. And you will never in your life enjoy such a walk with God as you could ever possibly enjoy if you'll make that public declaration, if you need to. Now, I don't mean, oh, well, my mom and dad know or my sister knows or, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being as open and bold and public as Joseph and Nicodemus were before everybody. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we are truly grateful that the Lord Jesus was willing to suffer the shame and the humiliation publicly on a cross. Even if Though they had robbed him of his clothes, he hung there in shame on our behalf, bearing our sins and shedding his own blood. How I pray, Father, that we would be willing to face just what it is that has been accomplished for us on that that cross. And that blood that poured from his body. And yet in spite of that, it was he who gave up the ghost, gave up his spirit, and willingly died. And even Paul in Philippians tells us that he had to be obedient unto death. That it was not a natural occurrence for him. I thank you for that willingness, Father, of your own son to die and bear our sins. Now, Father, I pray that for all the things that he has promised us, that we would be bold in our faith, strong, courageous, even as these men, and knowing that it would bring great pleasure to you, should we do so. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.